modes of thought in Interran literature. Second year classics, Harvard University. say thanks to those of you who came to Professor Engstrom's funeral. That um, that means something that was that was really nice of you. And I, I heard that they're planning a concert of the last works that Professor Engstrom was creating um, as a way to kind of celebrate his life. And uh, I think that's that's great. Hopefully we can all go to that and enjoy it. Um, okay. Something I'm realizing we should have done a long time ago, probably, uh, is just lay out the pantheon of Second Empire and Terra. I mean, who doesn't love a good old family tree of gods and goddesses, right? But... As we find over and over again with Antera, things are a little complicated. And I'm going to try to keep it clear and simple, um, but in doing so, I'll probably leave a lot of stuff out. Either way, let's just, you know, enjoy getting a sense of who the Anterans worshipped. And then maybe we can construe some meaning uh, about how they viewed the world from that religious construct. The, the fundamentals of the creation myth we already have. Um, Teosha, divine human female, gave birth to nine children. They would build the world, but every time they went to sleep, all of them, at the same time, the world would reset to zero, and they'd have to start building the world over again. So... She created Ecopa, a male deity with a thousand eyes, well, 999. Um, <clears throat> and Ecopa's responsibility was to watch the world always so that it wouldn't reset anymore. We talked about the idea of object permanence and the notion that uh, by keeping an eye on the universe, it basically unlocked time. It allowed it to grow and build upon itself. With this kind of creation myth, it's easy to get the sense that we're heading towards our usual, uh, usual structure of an ancient pantheon. There's sort of a founding god whose children become the collective gods that rule over various aspects of life and the world. I'm looking at the Greeks and the Romans, of course. Kronos gives way to Zeus and the other gods. But, you know, also the Incan tradition of Viracocha, the creator deity who made the world, and then the other deities were added to stand in for the sun, the moon, death, etc. 
and we do have some of that, um, actually a lot of it. We have nine children of Ecopa, and each of them have nine children, and each of them have nine children. So you get it, right? The list of gods is astronomical, and it literally never ends. It's like a fractal. For social purposes, public festivals and that sort of thing, the top tier nine gods were sufficient. Um, but if you needed a god of, I lost my keys and where the fuck are my keys, they had one specifically for that. It was highly specified. And that specificity is something that integrated the life of the gods into the everyday world for Antares in this incredibly fluid system that, uh, to me, harkens to Shinto. So I, I want to go kind of into Shintoism, and then we can go back to the main nine gods. Okay? Um, I don't know how many of you have delved into world religions. Uh, I'm sure a bunch of you. Uh, but Shintoism. Let's get into it. The background of Shinto is very unique. It's seemingly isolated to the islands of Japan. And because of this uniquely decentralized structure of the religion, I'll go into it, it never really spread out beyond Japan. So what do I mean by decentralized? What I mean is there's no patriarch or matriarch or specified leader of the Shinto church. It's not really a church. Not at all. Shinto is at its core about reverence for, we can't even call it worship of, kami. The word kami can be translated as either deities or spirits. And there's some fluidity between those roles and the understanding of the supernatural according to Shinto. Sorry, I'm not being very clear. Let's start over. What is a kami? A kami is a spirit or a god of a specific place or occurrence. There could be a forest that has its own kami or even a tree. There could be a storm that has its kami, and it may also be the kami of other storms. In each of these kami, they can't really be prayed to in the way that we think of in the Western tradition. We pray to God to get a good score on a test or win a soccer game, right? Kami don't care. The best you can do is not offend the kami so they don't come looking for you. <laughs> that's, that's the nature of Shintoism and its relationship with kami. If the kami of a typhoon wants to have a typhoon, that is as it is. It is beyond moral judgment, and there's nothing you can do. But we don't want to offend or upset the kami we don't want to fight the flow of the natural world because that will incur their vengeance and then there will definitely be a storm and 
you know, it'll suck. So that's a very different relationship with the supernatural world than what we see in the Western tradition, right? This, this seems to have grown out of a sort of folkloric tradition. Villages and towns would have their own kami, perhaps the kami of the well or the kami of the fields, and some of them were based on past ancestors, some of them were spirits in that sense, and others were gods, and each would be venerated in different ways that sort of slowly unified into a tradition of creating shrines, lighting incense, making offerings of food, and using music or chanting or clapping to interact with the kami. So offerings and sound. Um, the music associated with Shinto is really powerful. I, I should post some stuff on the website. And if I get a chance, I'll, I'll do that. Another thing that is remarkable about Shintoism is just how flexible it is. When Buddhism was brought over from India via Korea in the 6th century CE, many Japanese thought of the Buddha as another kami. So they had no problem assimilating Buddhist practices into their spiritual routines without replacing the kami they had always known at all. Um, it was just additive. And even the early Japanese Christians thought of Jesus as this new kami that they were aware of until you know the Jesuits explained that it was kind of an all-or-nothing deal, which brought some pretty serious problems, not surprising. Um, if anybody hasn't read about it, look up the Shimabara Rebellion and you'll see what I'm talking about. It was uh, a, an insane moment in history where a group of early Japanese Christians hold themselves up in a castle and um, it, it didn't, didn't go well. Yeah, the Shimabara Rebellion. That's what it's called. Okay. Also, again, differentiating Shinto from what we would think of in the Western tradition as more conventional religious practices, there's, there's no central text for Shintoism, right? There's no Bible, per se. There are two books, the Nihon Shoki, and the Kojiki, which uh, Kojiki translates as the record of ancient matters. So, you know, I love that. Um, but these aren't very prescriptive texts or even philosophical. They're, they're more historical in nature. Also, there was no set structure for who could become a priest or monk or what have you, religious leader. There, there seems to have been like a hereditary practice. Um, it was passed from, you know, uh, father to son. Um, there were both male and female priests. I'm using that word, but uh, it's not right. And at one point, 
in the distant past, it said that the empress of Japan was sort of the leader of the spiritual community, but that faded pretty early on. And by faded, I guess I mean the emperors preferred not to cede any control to the women of Japan, um, something we've seen in a lot of other cultures. I'm looking at you, ancient Greece and Rome and a lot of other places. Um, also, okay, speaking of Greece and Rome, we have a pretty clear, tight pantheon of gods in Greece and Rome. Shinto, on the other hand, refers to the eight million kami. That's the, the expression directly translates from the Japanese. And it's this sort of hyperbolic way of saying, yes, we have an endless number of gods. All right, so why am I talking so much about Shinto and Shintoism? Um, what we're seeing in Antara has a lot of parallels, even more than the ones I've handed out so far. For instance, among the eight million kami, there is, uh, and I'm gonna say this wrong, Amaterasu, the kami of the sun, who is the daughter of Izanagi and Izanami, the brother and sister pair who created the world with a spear. Um, I don't want to get lost in the weeds here, but there are some specific kami who are older and more widely revered than others. Uh, for instance, there's the seven kami of fortune, for example. So again, how does this relate to Antara? Well, um, my sources have sort of dried up recently, and I'm getting less information. But as a result, I was looking at some of the work that inspired Dev Engstrom's music, um, specifically the carvings on the western wall of the chamber of the idiot king. And he noticed that some of the letters were carved deeper than others. So... Okay, there's an intention to the act of carving and to the placement of the characters. So with the help of some data sorting, thank you, Chris, for that, um, we managed to create a sort of map of the frequency of certain glyphs throughout Dark City, from the walls in the low quarters all the way to Golden Square where the nobility lived. And what I'm suggesting based on this information map, is that the pantheon of Antara was anchored to the city geographically by these glyphs. If a god or a spirit is mentioned, they are mentioned only in one building by their proper name. Now they might be mentioned by a, a moniker or a sobriquet somewhere else in the city, but the primary glyph that represents that deity is not repeated outside of one initial location. Again, that to me pulls us back to the notion of Shinto, where kami can be hyper-specific to place. 
um, it's it's a little bit ghostly, right? Uh, it's uh, almost like uh, the way we see like seventies horror movies <laughs> with you know the haunted house. This was the notion in Shinto, and it appears to be a notion that also carried through the entirety of Prime A um, and Prime B, but we'll get to that. So, okay, who are the spirits or the deities that they venerated? Going back to the creation myth, right, we had Teosha, the mother of the worlds, who created the god Ikopa with the 999 eyes. And <clears throat> Teosha's children became the people of Antera. And Antera does have veneration for ancestry. Um, there are lists of kings and their heirs and their accomplishments. That's pretty conventional. But they were not divine. At no point were there rulers that we see that were specified as having anything like, quote-unquote, divine right. Um, whereas how many kings up until quite late, you know, uh, Louis XIV, uh, Tsar Nicholas II, all thought they were divinely appointed. So the gods that populate the pantheon of Antera are not the children of Teosha. What they are are the eyes of Ecopa. Apparently, the eyes of Ecopa occasionally pop out um, and, and then they regenerate. And when they do, these eyeballs can take on a life of their own. So the first eye of Ecopa is Narkath. Narkath is the god of death and the underworld. This again is very unusual. This is not uh, a pattern that we see in Inca, Mayan, Egyptian. It's very different to start with the god of death. Usually it's the sun, Aztec, Egyptian, etc. All those religions start with the god of the sun. In Antera, the first eye of Ecopa, which is a phrase they use to mean god or deity, the first eye of Ecopa is Narkath, the god of death. There's an interesting linguistic aspect to this because death and exile are very similar related words. They're cognates. So that, that suggests a very binary worldview to me. You're in or you're out. You're enteran or you're dead. Interesting, right? Does that mean they were belligerent to outside tribes? We don't really see that in the Second Empire, but we don't know. If they sent troops out into the world, we don't have any records of that. Um, there's just so much more research to be done. Okay, let's stay focused on the first nine eyes of Ecopa. They were Narkath, god of death, <clears throat> Ryamsur, goddess of the sun, Ryamsur. Um, there is a sun god, right? Uh, and for some reason, 
she comes second. Feta, god of the water. Sinshar is a sky god. Methora, god of the fields and harvests. Kin Eller, god of achievement. Um, this could be war or battle, but also other kinds of achievements like uh, building a great monument or a library. <clears throat> Shanut, uh, goddess of fertility. And this is specific to birth, not a general sort of fertility. Um, she's the goddess of the act of procreation, sex and birth specifically. And these last two, Isabicopa, these last two deities uh, of the top nine are really unique. We have Horquana, the goddess of sameness, and Nequana, the god of differences. We don't have a lot of information on these two. They each had their own temple, their own locus, um, on opposite sides of the city. Uh, and we don't have any photographs of the carvings inside. We only have the aerial views. And I am dying to know more about these two gods. Uh, it, it's just fucking fascinating. Why? Why would two of the primary gods in the Interran pantheon focus on sameness and difference? Is it... A philosophical duality like yin and yang? Does it go back to that binary worldview that we mentioned before, that either you're in Terran, i.e. the same, or not, i.e. different? We don't know. Um, we just don't know. It's frustrating. What we do know, and this is also why I want to know more about this, is that in the advent of the Third Empire, right, Horquana, the goddess of sameness, took on a much higher prevalence among the nine primary gods. The temple that was uh, initially built in kind of a humble fashion on the east side of the city is apparently redone, expanded. There's a huge square in front of it um, that we kind of have to assume was for rituals or ceremonies. Um, so this notion of sameness as represented by the goddess Horquana seems to have been valued increasingly as we move into the Third Empire, but we don't even have like a very good understanding of the Interran notion of sameness um, or what the context around that delineation was. So there's a lot to study here. We also know, and we haven't really gotten into Prime B, but this is interesting. We also know that in Prime B, uh, which is the much smaller settlement about 17 kilometers northeast of Dark City. In Prime B, there seems to be a prevalence of the deity Nequana, the god of differences, at the city gates, and again 
at the central temple in the city, Nequana is the celebrated god. Why? We don't know. Um, but this schism between Nequana and Horquana, this is the key to the cultural shift that began during the Third Empire. So, to me, this is an invitation that's hard to refuse, right? We got to read into this. Um, back in Dark City, we have the subjugation of a segment of the population that are differentiated by their name. They're known as the Tall Ones, right? So, the sudden internment of almost a third of the entire occupants of the city. And shortly after, there's a new smaller city which celebrates the god of difference. But, <laughs> as much as we want to read into this, we don't know. Let's hold on to that, okay? We may want to ascribe some of our contemporary modes of thought onto what's happening in Antara. I know I do. Um, and maybe that's accurate. But please, don't lose sight of the notion that we need more facts, more truth to draw parallels. Uh, one of the things that I've learned from studying early Antarian literature is a, a reverence for that which we do not know. So let's try to maintain that as we're looking at this and doing our reading. Okay. All right. Thanks, everybody. That's it for today. And um, yeah, I'll see you next week. Modes of Thought in Interran Literature. This podcast is made possible by Harbridge University, a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Peeler Prize in Archaeological Literature, and the Harbridge Family Trust. With an in-kind donation and production assistance from Wolf at the Door Studios. For more information, and a reading list, please visit modesofthoughtpodcast.com. The Fable and Folly Network, where fiction producers flourish. In the alley, the scent is stronger, overpowering. As I watch, the overhead lamps flicker and wink out one by one. God damn it. No. The girl appears briefly under the last streetlight, the headphones snug against her ears, the Walkman clasped to her hip. She's oblivious as she walks, lost in her own world. Hey, stop! I need to talk to you! Then she's swallowed up by the darkness again. Helen! Wait a second! It strikes her in the gloom so fast she barely has time to scream. She falls into the edge of the lamplight and lies there, bleeding, motionless. 
The man's skin is scaly, flaking, and there are patches of soot on his cheeks. He stares at me with eyes like midnight. Eyes that are devoid of remorse, devoid of humanity. He's one of them. I turn and run, and I don't look back. The Road of Shadows, a new mystery and suspense audio drama by Mark R. Healy, creator of The Strata. Listen now at theroadofshadows.com. Thank you.